0: All right, let's flip to the second letter of John, toward the end of your Bible there just in front of Revelation and Jude. You have the three letters of John. We in America say 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, but if you're British it's 1, 2 and 3. We say it differently. 2nd John 1 through th- verses 1 through 13. Let's go ahead and stand together for the reading of God's word. The second letter of John, beginning in verse 1, these are the words of God. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we received commandment, a commandment from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. See to yourselves that you do not lose what we accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting, For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Let's pray. Our Father and blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. That we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in your Savior, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. You can be seated. This week we're going to take a look at the second epistle of John. The second epistle of John, and Lord willing, next week we'll take a gander at the third epistle of John, both very short letters. The author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is the same author as the Gospel of John, as well as the Revelation. It is noteworthy that this disciple whom Jesus loved, his name is John, it's noteworthy that he gives us a Gospel narrative, he gives us three personal letters, and an apocalyptic vision to boot. A lot of different styles of, in, in terms of genre, it was It's really impressive how much variation we get from this disciple. For him to give us a gospel, three letters, and then an apocalyptic vision of Revelation. The three letters of John give us a glimpse at the pastoral and elderly care he shows to both the church and to individuals. John was a young disciple and he cared very much about the church and he cared much about the people that he was ministering to. And so these letters help us see a little bit about his care and concern. Now, all three letters are concerned with truth and love. All three are concerned with truth and love. If you were to search those, you would find that continually popping up in in these letters. All three letters are concerned with obedience to the commandments of God. And all three take very seriously the incarnation of Jesus, the Son of God the second person of the Trinity who has existed forever, eternally, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the second person took on flesh. And John is very interested in that scenario and what happened, and you can see that in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Now as John sees it, truth is worth fighting for. Truth is worth fighting for, and love is the mode of our fight. And I I find these concepts to be very timely because in our day, truth is absolutely being assailed. Truth is under attack. Truth is no longer something that we care deeply about anymore. How do we, though, in response to that, how do we as Christians who make audacious truth claims, how do we live in a world of falsity and lies? How should we live? What do we do when the world has gone mad, when the world when the world of evil is under the power of the evil one, 1 John 5:19. what do you do when clown world is taken over when everyone is quite comfortable fashioning their own set of truths and when everyone is at home with lying and being quite okay with it definitionally truth is that which corresponds to the mind of God And and children, if you could make sure you note that for the rest of your life, you need to remember remember that definition. Truth is that which corresponds to the mind of God. That, when somebody says, well, what is truth? Remember, Pilate asked that to Jesus. What is truth? What are you you gonna say? Well, I like to think of truth as, no, that's not truth. Truth is what comports, what corresponds to the mind of God. You see, it's like a big wooden Jenga tower. If you played the game Jenga, you'll know what I'm talking about. When you remove certain truths, what happens to the tower? It starts to fall. See, all, all truth is God's truth, and when we begin to separate it out, trying to trim along the edges, we inevitably destroy the whole thing. When you start to compromise on certain things, you start to tear the tower apart, and it falls down. So what do we do when the world wants to not only remove these truths, but obliterate them altogether? Not just remove pieces, but put dynamite at the bottom and destroy the whole thing. That's Western civilization right now. What are we, what are we supposed to do? How must we respond? And we need to remember a few things today so that we might respond with grace and truth in a culture of lies and arrogance. So truth, truth is the environment we live in. Truth is simply the environment in which we live. Truth is inescapable. Fish, A fish can sooner live without water than we can live without truth. We're all truth to collapse in creation because God removed his sovereign hand. It would just, it would just fall apart. You, you can't live in a world like that. And that's because truth sustains everything about us. You breathe truth. You swim in truth. You see truth every single day. You live in a aquarium of truth as it were now from the christian worldview truth has home field advantage we have to remember that especially in apologetics and and, in conversations with unbelievers and trying to help them to see truth we have to remember that we have home field advantage they're breathing god's air they live and move and have their being because of god so you don't have to pretend like that's not the case we have home field advantage the earth belongs to the meek children of god Jesus didn't promise that the earth would belong to those who would do evil. So we have home field advantage. And this is because truth is the necessary precondition of all of life. Truth is the necessary precondition of all of life. Consequently, falsity is not permitted to rival truth in any meaningful way. It is impossible to live in a world without truth. And therefore, that which is false must not be tolerated. So we are to walk in truth because truth is the condition of God's sovereign hand. So let's consider our text and walk through it. Now the letter itself has a chiastic structure. If you're not familiar with a chiasm, is what it is, a chiasm is a commonly used literary device where you roll out ideas in sequence and then they reach the climax in the middle and then the ideas are recapitulated in reverse order. So think of it like kind of an, an arrow. You have A, B, C, D, and D is kind of the main point, and then you go backwards, C, B, A. And so he starts with topics, get to, gets to his point, and then he revisits those topics and comes back to it. And so the Bible, that was a very useful mode of communication in Scripture, and, and chiastics, are these structures are everywhere. So the letter begins and ends with the elect lady. So note that. So we, have, we already start with the elect lady and then at the end we have this elect sister. So clearly there's this structure to the text. And the elect lady is a local church or a group of churches obviously chosen by God and the children of that lady are the people of God. So John's writing this to, to the elect lady, the people of God. The feminine language is used there, the church is always used in a feminine way. Because Jesus is the husband, the Christ's church is the bride. So the church, we can say, is our mother. That's kind of what John is getting at. The church is our mother. John then moves into the commandment to love, which corresponds with the requirement to abide in the teaching. However, the middle of this chiasm, the main point of what he's getting at, is the problem of verses 7 through 8. And what is the problem we find in verse 7 and 8? Well, we have deceivers and the Antichrist. I'll answer that question for you later, who is the Antichrist? A little hint, there's not just one, (laughs) there are many Antichrists. So Jesus warned that many would come in his name and as a result John wants the church to be on guard. This was a time leading up to AD 70. You had a lot of political pressure. Rome was putting their boots on the necks of the people in Israel. And that war started in 66 AD. So we have John telling them, look, all of this stuff is normal. Like this, I mean, it's not normal, but it's what's happening. Jesus said it was gonna happen. So be on guard, pay attention, because there are deceivers out there who want to lead you astray and lead you straight to hell. So pay attention, he says. Now, when we use this structure, this chiastic structure, we can identify the main reason and the occasion for the, for the letter, but let's work our way there, beginning there in the first three verses. In verses 1, 2, and 3, we have a greeting. Just a hello, it's a normal letter. This is a normal-sized letter, by the way, in this time frame. Um, Paul's letter of like Romans and stuff, they're a little uncanny. They're not normal, but it's good that we have them, obviously. God wanted us to have them. But John begins by saying that we must love the truth. You must love the truth. John identifies himself as an elder writing to his children, and his love for them is rooted in, verse 1, the truth. His love is rooted in the truth. In fact, all love, if it is to be love, is necessarily tied to truth. Okay, this is an important Note, we'll come back to it later, but this is an important note with regard to love and our culture's excitement over that concept of love. In our culture, without Christ and the truth, you don't have love. You just have lust. So all love, if it's to be love, is necessarily tied to truth. The elect lady is simply the church of God, the bride of Christ, chosen to be the bride of the Son. Now the truth, who is Christ himself, remember Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth and the life. Jesus is truth. He defines truth. He is truth itself. Um, but the, the truth, who is Christ Himself and His Holy Spirit working in the elect lady, is what makes us a family. It's what binds us together forever. That's in verse 2. It binds us together forever. In verse 3, John desires that grace, mercy, and peace be with us, which is the same as saying that the Spirit of God should be with us. So think of definitions here. Grace is undeserved favor. So this is God showing you grace. You don't deserve it. You deserve nothing but judgment, but he is gracious to you. So that's grace. Mercy is kindness for the destitute. Mercy is God's proclivity to show kindness to those who are downtrodden or destitute. And peace is the fruit of reconciliation with God. So he moves us from grace to peace, and the, or grace to mercy, then to peace. We've been reconciled with God, we are at peace with God. These three things serve as kind of counterparts of, of truth and love. Now he identifies God the Father, who is mentioned on the same level of, as Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Son of the Father, there in verse 3. So truth, truth and love brings it all together. You must love the truth because it's what it brings everything together. Truth and love flow from the Trinitarian Godhead. You'll note there the word truth is used. Aletheia is the, is the Greek word. It's used four times in three verses. <laughs> four times he uses it. Whenever you see repetition, pay attention. He's hitting home a point that's important. So correct doctrine... This is what he's getting at. Correct doctrine is a sign and mark of faithful and true Christianity. Today, this is sort of like a social faux pas anymore to talk about doctrine in the church. It's just seen as, oh, you're just old and crusty. You just want to talk about doctrine as if that matters. Well, it does matter. In fact, it is the defining mark of the church. We are a confessional church church meaning we confess certain truths and those truths deal with everything in the world all of reality who god is who we are what sin is what redemption is so truth does matter and correct doctrine is important and and people well doctrine divides good it should it should first john 5 1 says everyone who believes that jesus is the christ has been born of god that is an important text to think about. Christianity, by strict definition, inherently, inherently means to know the truth. To become a Christian is to be transformed by truth. You can't even get to this moment of being born again, this moment of, of covenant with God in Christ. Your sin's forgiven. You can't even get there without first dealing with the truth. And the truth deals with you. So truth abides in us, he says. It abides in us. It is not superseded or displaced by some other higher form of truth. That's the Gnostic heresy of thinking, well, there's other higher forms of truth that's out there that we have to discover. But only Christianity possesses true truth. That's what Francis Schaeffer called it. Christianity provides true truth, and not just truth like we think of today as subjective, right? Live your truth. Do whatever you think is right. Only you can do you. You know, you you can't mess with this objective stuff and because John links truth with love here in verse 3 we understand that gospel truth gospel truth always leads to gospel love when you meet salvation is like getting hit by a Mack truck (laughs) you're on the road to hell and God kills you with his gospel and then raises you to new life and, and we love that, and we rejoice in that. But that leads somewhere as well. You've been hit with that truck of truth, and now you live in that truck of truth. And that's how the gospel functions. So only the truth of Christ gives love and galvanizes love. Look at verse 4, 5, and 6. So we have a greeting. We have the walk here. Next, John says we must live the truth. You must love the truth, and you must live in the truth. Children of the church are to walk in the commandments of God, and this is not legalism. It's not legalism to walk in the commandments of God. In fact, the commandments of God, boiled down by Christ as being a love for God and love for neighbor, are fairly simple and uncomplicated when you think about it. What does God ask us to do? He asks us to love one another. Jesus boils the Ten Commandments down to love God, love neighbor, And that's a good summary of it. Those are the two greatest commands when he was asked. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. To the degree that you love yourself and care about your needs, you should care about others in that same way. So given by the Father, verse 4, we receive the command. We receive the command and then we execute the command there in verse 5. So love is our strut when walking through life. If our shoes are peace, our manner of walking is love. Because the concepts of truth and love are tied together, John says in verse 6 that this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. That is a fun thing to point out to the world. When they want to define love as whatever they want it to. No, actually, this is love to walk in accordance with with his commandments. So love is obedience, actually. By definition, biblically, love is obedience, and obedience is love. Both both work that way. We are commanded to believe. That's a commandment from the Father in verse 4. Love, though coming from the heart, does not stay in the heart. It must be manifested in neighborly service, verse 5. So you can we like, we've even come up with a phrase to help justify this. Well, it's the thought that counts. Well, sure, but what really counts is if you take the thought and move it to action. <laughs> that's, that's expressing love in tangible ways, whether it's your, your spouse, your friends, your neighbors, your children, coworkers. When you're trying to extend love, if you just kind of this get-out-of-jail-free card, well, I, 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 I thought about doing something nice, Pat me on the back. <laughs> As if that works, ever, anywhere. Husbands, I don't recommend you tell that to your wives. In the Apostle Paul's mind, the gospel is an obedience of faith. That's in Romans 1.5. The gospel is an obedience of faith. In Acts 6, verse 7, many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. You can just search word search that, that phrase, obedient to the faith or obedient of, of faith. True disciples hear Jesus' words and act upon them. That's Luke 6. True disciples hear Jesus' words and act upon them. James tells us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Chapter 1, verse 22. That's an indictment, if there ever was one. Don't just be hearers of the word. Be doers. Be doers of the word. The word of God is meant to be put into action. The command highlighted here is belief, obedience, obedience and outward, the outward manifestation of love. So belief, true doctrine, believing in God. You have obedience that comes from that true belief. And then thirdly, you have this manifestation of love. It's, and it's meant to flow in that order. Right doctrine leads to true action. And true action is love. So that's, that's the funnel, so to speak. Now all of these concepts are bound up together. So to reiterate, John commands us to believe... He commands us to believe, and the gospel is a command to repent and believe. To walk in the truth as commanded by the Father. What we believe is just as important as believing itself, right? And that's sort of an important point in today's culture. What we believe, the content of our belief, is just as important as belief itself. Because you ask a lot of people, culturally they would identify as mean. When you have a nation that allegedly has the majority of people are Christians, and then you look at what's going on, something's wrong. Something is broken down here. What you believe is just as important that you of your believing itself. So we're commanded to believe. Second, he also commands us to behave and act in a certain way. So yes, believe the right truth, but obedience is required. There are certain actions that flow from a true knowledge of God, This ethical conduct that corresponds to the command is required. And you might say, "Oh, that's legalist. No, you believe the gospel and the doctrine of it. You're shaped by by it and you live a certain way. And if you're not living a certain way, we have a problem. Thirdly, we are ordered to love. Just reiterating, belief, obedience, love. Thirdly, we're ordered to love. Love is self-sacrifice for the benefit of another. That is the best definition I can come up with. Love is self-sacrifice for the benefit of of another. So we care for one another. We serve one another. We act kindly to one another. We forgive one another. We comfort one another. We devote ourselves to one another. We carry burdens for one another. Lay down our lives for one another. There's 30 plus one another's in scripture. They're there for a reason. This is love. This is love. True truth always gives rise to love, and obedience makes it all go. Look at verses 7 through 11. We're finally to the point of the letter, the deceivers. So we must love truth, live truth, and now we must look for the truth. You must look, be looking for the truth. The marks of true Christian practice are this. Orthodoxy, that's belief. Ethics, that's obedience. And love. Those three things keep keep coming up and we find that the deceivers in question here in verse 7 do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh they don't confess him as coming in the flesh we have here an organized threat against the faith teachers who are actively propagating heretical teaching and it was ubiquitous during this time these people are unorthodox and what is their theological problem What is their deal? Well, they deny the pre-existence of Christ and the humanity of Christ. And that's based on the past tense word usage here in verse 7. So they they didn't hold that Jesus was eternally the Son of God. And then when he came in the flesh, well, he didn't really come in the flesh. In other words, they didn't believe that Jesus is still existing after his death and resurrection as one person with two natures. Now you might think, why do we need to know that Jesus today exists as one person with two natures? Well, let me tell you, the first 500 years of Christendom fought over that thing. That very important doctrine of Christ's One person, he is one person with two natures. He's fully God and fully man. Now because of this, they didn't see any ongoing incarnation in that sense. Apparently this group of deceivers didn't think that Jesus is, was really ever human and that he's still human today. Now, a little quick history lesson. Throughout history we've seen many, many Christological heresies. The Arians denied the divine nature of Christ and that was a heretical group that was uh, condemned and this doctrine was clarified at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. If you remember history, Constantine had issued the Edict of Milan in 313 AD essentially Christianizing the Roman Empire and A little bit later, in 325, they had to deal with this issue. Who was Christ? Was He fully God and fully man? How do we conceptualize this? So that was the Arians' position. They thought He really wasn't divine. Now the Apollinarians, they denied the human nature of Christ, and that was condemned at the Council of Constantinople in 381. So you had the Arians denying the divine nature. The Apollinarians denied the human nature. There were other heresies involved. Some of them denied the, the union of the two natures of Christ. Well, maybe he's only 75% God, 25% human. Or they, You start denying these things. That was condemned at the Council of Ephesus in 431. And the Eutychians conflated the natures of Christ, which was condemned at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. So everybody's got issues with this doctrine for the first 500 years of the Christian church. Who is Jesus One person, two natures, fully God, fully man. Well, not really divine, or not really man, man, or maybe there's no distinction, or actually they're completely different things. Lots of heretical beliefs were condemned. But the point is, Jesus Christ and his person is at the center of all theological truth. Of all truth, Jesus is at the center. Truth hinges on Christ, the incarnate word of truth. That's why people for 500 years debated this. It was all centered on Jesus. Who is this Jesus? And getting who Jesus is correct is of the utmost importance. Now, those who mess with the nature of Christ are antichrist. Uh, simple antichristos in Greek, it's just a simple phrase. You're against Christ. And, you know, there's no, in, in my view, there's no future antichrist figure. You just have, in the, in the book of Revelation, doesn't even mention the word Antichrist. But John does in his letters. And somebody who is an Antichrist is simply somebody who denies Christ coming in the flesh. That's just a strict scriptural definition. So instead of compromising on the person of Jesus, John commands the elect lady to see yourselves, see to yourselves. Look at verse 8. To see to yourselves or look to yourselves. So the examination of oneself is important for practicing and maintaining truth, for we are all prone to step out of line. It's so important for you to keep a watch over your soul, to, you to keep a watch over your heart, where your mind goes. How much fear are you being driven by? What doctrinal content are you ignoring? You have to pay attention to yourself. And he says here, you, you must look, see to yourselves, look at yourselves, examine yourselves. And when we examine ourselves, we do not lose the accomplishment of truth that we received as a reward, he says in verse 8. So watchfulness over the self is just as important as watchfulness against the deceivers. And we must watch out for others too. Verse 9 warns us that one of the key problems with false teaching is that it, quote, goes too far. Do You see that there, there in verse 9? Anyone who goes too far... When you go too far, it doesn't abide in the teaching of Christ. And as a result, one does not have God. Abiding in the truthful commandment means possessing the Father and the Son. But doctrinal addition is a terrible heresy. Jesus plus this equals holiness. Jesus plus my view of this equals holiness. We like to add things. That is a heretical teaching. Many problems arise when people try to add to to Christianity. Some try to sync Christianity with paganism or Eastern religious practices. Others try to be cute and clever and thinking Christianity needs some additional content. You know, this Christian thing would be great if we could just add this to it. No, you don't mess with that recipe. It's written. It's done. You don't add to it. Still others want to remove the undesired parts. One of the biggest issues in the church today in progressive Christianity is a reshaping of not only male-only eldership, but also reshaping sexual ethics. Anything is permitted. So not only do you have the arrogance flag, which will be foisted upon us here in a few weeks, put up in places like Starbucks and other companies you have it in churches draped on the altar out front we are a tolerating we welcome everyone except I don't think they would tolerate me if I showed up (laughs) that's Christianity plus some additional in fact well you know what let's take away the hard parts let's take away the command of marriage and fidelity and we can bend the rules on that it's okay Either way, whether you add to it or subtract to it, doing so undermines the whole thing. James says you break one law, you break them all. You violate one scripture, you violated them all. And the fact is, one does not advance beyond the teaching of Christ. You don't really advance. You develop, you mature, you grow, but you don't go any further. You don't get to a point in your life where, well, I don't really need Jesus, I have this. And when you start adding or subtracting doctrinal content, that's where you end up. You end up rejecting the Christ you confess. And many people want to do that. Like, I I really, I love Jesus. Yeah, I just, I'm really into Buddhism. I love Jesus. I'm just really into this or that. And you start to compromise. Christ is the truth and you do not go beyond him any more than the house goes beyond the foundation. Now in light of this John warns about aiding and abetting the false teachers. He tells them the you by the way is plural here verse 10. The you is plural. He tells them not to extend hospitality to the deceivers. Now it doesn't mean you cannot engage JWs, Mormons, you know. You 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 can't we're supposed to engage them, but it means you cannot help them advance their mission. So do not platform false teachers in the assembly of the church. Do not give them room to teach and aid their false teaching in church or in your home. To love them is to turn them away from their errors, to starve them of attention. Sometimes love requires agitation and evangelism. Sometimes you have to tell the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses to stop leading your neighbors to hell. I chased some down the road one time in Michigan said you need to not come to our neighborhood and they didn't want to engage but i tried but i don't want you leading my neighbors to hell they're already going there you're going to make it worse finally in verses 12 and 13 we have the joy here we must long for truth john longs to see them face to face so their joy will be complete he longs for them because the truth matters particularly in community John is an elder, and elders must care about defending truth. And he says that meeting face-to-face is much better than a letter or a text message. I indeed prefer those things. I think conversations, we miss out on that with our technology today. We think it's just easier to just throw a text at somebody. But really, meeting face-to-face is where the genuine fellowship happens. And I think we should learn to cultivate that even more. But John has other sister churches, and they said to say hi, verse 13. (laughs) So how do we live? Well, scripture should not be added to or subtracted from. It's God's word. It's his whole and complete word, and it does not need any upgrades. It is imperative that the bride of Christ keep herself unstained by false doctrine. As John sees it, truth is what binds us together. Truth is what brings us here on the Lord's day. Truth is what strengthens our fellowship and our relationships But if that's true, that truth binds us together, then false teaching rips us apart. The fact of Christ's death and resurrection coupled with the fact of the Spirit's application of those benefits to you is what brings us together. We may think differently about many, many things. We may have different opinions about secondary, indeed tertiary matters. And we can have those conversations and those are always a fun thing to do. So we might think differently about some things. But what binds us together in community is the gospel truth of Christ's total lordship. Thus, we are supposed to walk in this truth and protect this truth. We care for one another, pray for one another, fellowship with one another. Whether you're introverted or not, don't use introversion as an excuse. Because I think that's, we've gotten on that in our churches today. Well, I'm introverted, therefore I'm not going to go talk to that person no you're supposed to feel slightly uncomfortable get over it you'll be okay <laughs> easy for you to say well it may be but we're called to these tasks so if we're not going to do it then we have a breakdown the practice of truth must prevail in this church in all churches all of that's to say truth is a trinitarian project That is, truth exists as a concept and as a condition of all reality because of the triune nature of God. God's very existence is not predicated on anyone or anything else. Children, God always existed. I remember being, what, six and hearing that for the first time, and I thought, that is an interesting concept. God has always existed. By definition, he's always existed. Nobody made him, nobody created him. That's how powerful he is. He simply exists. He exists in a self-sufficient manner. He needs no one else to give credence to his existence. God simply is. And this is why we can define truth as being that which corresponds to the mind of God. If you don't have the anchor of God in his very existence, then truth is subjective. and you can just make it whatever you want it to be. Truthfulness can only be sustained by a sovereign and omnipotent, omnipotent God. Rushjuni says it this way, "...the Christian must maintain that created being has no meaning in itself, and all attempts to understand it in terms of itself constitutes a rejection of true meaning. Neither can man have meaning in himself, because he too is a creature. Nothing can have meaning in itself or of itself, because nothing exists in or of itself." What he's saying is truth and meaning are not disclosed nor defined by the mind of man because man too is a created being. Now, that may be confusing to you, but that is the heart of our culture right now. Truth claims because of the whims of man. None of us walked into this world on our own volition. You, didn't, you weren't born and then five minutes later, hey, hey mom and dad, I'm here to tell you some stuff. Nobody, none of that happened. You were brought here by the sovereign hand of God. You didn't bless the world with your version of truth at birth. Hence the reason why man cannot determine truth for himself. Thinking in terms of missiology and our role in seeing to it that the crown rights of King Jesus are acknowledged in the world, this concept is incredibly important. The Western world has been captured by the demons of human autonomy. Truth is whatever advances the current thing. You ever see the th- things on, like Facebook? Like, "I support the current thing. <laughs> like, maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> in fact, I, I don't. I never support the current thing. Rarely do I, because it's usually garbage. In our culture, if it doesn't comport with my feelings, my perspective, my agenda, then it must go away. And that's why the culture's greatest threat is in our Christians is really the greatest threat to the culture of Christians. And it's certainly not a current threat because we have let it all go uncontested, but it could be a threat should we begin to take seriously the kingdom Christ has established. John emphasizes that truth and love belong together. And think about your own relationships, your own, all of that, but truth without love becomes a stick to beat people with. If you have truth but no love, all you're doing is clobbering them. And love without truth is fakery and goo. It's mushy. Truth must be defended and done so by love. But love must be anchored to truth, otherwise it will drift away. You can't love someone if you're not willing to tell the truth. Truth and love go together because both come from the same fountainhead. God. And thus we need to put this into practice. And this is why John can speak of them in terms of command. Believe. Obey, love, commands. Truth, truth is meant to be believed and practiced. And showing love looks like standing by truth no matter the cost, even going so far as keeping someone out of your house and away from your church. Now all of this is related to the local church, and I'm going to close with this here. You must know why you're here. You must know why you are here. So why are you here at Cross and Crown? We asked that question in our heads of household meeting a couple months ago. Why are you even here? What's. You know, what? I know it's not a fog machine. Are you here for the sake of truth? Are you? Then take it seriously. Are you here for the sake of love? Then do not fail to express it. We were created to exist in truth and love, and if we fail to do so, we, the elect lady, walk a different path, a more dangerous path, a path that is lined with greed, selfishness, and worst yet, worse yet, false teaching. And a lot of churches are walking this direction. Some are sprinting headlong into it. But deceivers will come from the outside, and we may perhaps see one rise from within, and we have to deal with that. But if we love truth, we will defend truth. We will walk in truth. We will be committed to truth all the days of our lives, and it will be the most loving thing you could give yourself to. Christ is truth. He gave you truth. You are in him, redeemed by his precious blood. You live in that truth now, and you too must lay down your life because no greater love is shown. Athanasius said it this way, If the world is against Christ, then I am against the world. Have that attitude in mind among you, friends. We will see Christ face to face someday when he wraps up history and defeats the final enemy. But until then, dear children and of the elect lady, walk in truth no matter the cost. It's the most loving thing you can do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words you've given us through your apostle and disciple, John. We're thankful that we can look to your word and we can be encouraged, we can be challenged, we can be convicted. Um, But most of all, I pray that we come to your word so that we can be anchored. That your Holy Spirit in us would drive us to the truth, to, to be committed to it. Committed to the advancement of your kingdom. Help us in our relationships, in our homes, our families. Help our children to learn how to love truth and to see truth as being love because God you are those things and you've proven it by sending Jesus your son to die in our place to be raised for our justification help us Lord as we learn from your word to be anchored and not be wishy-washy to not drift off into the ocean of self-autonomy but to be anchored by your truth and your word We pray these things in the name of Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen.